you would grab a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, where we will begin in this part of our worship, where we study from the Bible. Acts chapter 8. So good to see you this morning. We have a number of visitors, some who are passing through for different reasons. We're so thankful that you're here, that you've chosen to be with us. We just want you to feel welcome. And if there's something we can do to help you, we'd love for you to let us know about that. Before I get started, I also wanted to mention... Uh, to the high school and junior high kids, we're having the devotional that's uh, the first Sunday night devotional at our house tonight. So if you didn't remember that, you have no excuse. Tonight, 5 o'clock, we'll be uh, doing that at our house. Acts chapter 8, let's begin by reading in verse 12, Acts 8 and verse 12. The text says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So Luke details in these verses the spread of the gospel in the place called Samaria. The amazing conversion of a large number of people in the city, including a famous magician named Simon there. And I want to use that as a beginning point for what we're going to talk about for a few minutes this morning. Our theme for this year has been revisiting the foundations. And we talked about a lot of different foundational topics about our faith. We spent most of the first part of the year talking about Jesus. We spent the summer months talking about the Bible. And then we've spent the last few months talking about what we call Christian responses. And what we're going to do this morning is going to conclude our studies for the year. We are now in December, the last month of the year. And this is going to be the last time we're going to focus on these things in the course of our studies this year. Now, I'll say more in coming weeks about next year's theme and the readings we're going to do as a congregation next year in uh, the next coming in a couple of weeks here. But what I want to do this morning is spend our time talking about what may seem like an odd and a little bit philosophical objection to the straightforward nature of the gospel. I want to talk about the idea that we are not truly free to make our own moral choices, the idea of free will. And that idea is called determinism. Determinism means that actions that we take or things that happen in the world have already been decided. And so you are probably most familiar with determinism from Calvinism. John Calvin systematized the idea that God is in control of everything. And so if God is in control of everything, then he knows everything. And if he knows everything, he has already decided everything. So, Calvinism says, you are what God decides you are. If you please God, it's because he decided that you would please him. If you are a righteous person, it's because God made you righteous. If you're a wicked person, this is not talked about as much, it's because God made you wicked. But God has already done all the deciding. So, you will be lost or saved, independent of any choice you ever make. Whether you want to or not, God's already decided he's going to make you either guilty of sin and condemned because of that sin, or innocent of sin and therefore righteous because he has already decided. So you may do good things, but ultimately you have no choice. Now, what was interesting to me as I prepared for this lesson is that I actually started noticing determinism in other fields. I'm not sure if you're aware of it, but determinism is a very important idea in science. In fact, a lot of philosophical naturalists, that is people who believe that we evolve from nothing, they believe that a person's actions and thoughts and words are already determined. They are determined not by God, of course. They are determined by your genes and your environment. That no matter what you do, you could not possibly do something that was not already dictated by your genes 
and your environment. It's outside the realm of possibility. So in that philosophy, you are what your genes and your environment say you are. So it may feel like you have a choice, but you don't really have a choice. You're just going to be what you are already slated to be. And then I also noticed this idea in a different realm, in the realm of personal change. This came up when I was reading a, a review of a popular Christian women's book, urging women to take control of their lives. I haven't read the book, but I read the review. And the reviewer really balked at the idea that the author of this book would say that people who have problems should be expected to fix their problems themselves. That that's just, that just doesn't follow. You see, we can't tell people that you can choose to be happy in whatever situation you're in. The reviewer said, no, there are some situations where obstacles to happiness are outside our control. So the review had a lot to say about privilege and economic and racial inequality. There were some implications in the article that maybe our addictions really are not our choice. They're just a part of our biology. But all of it summed up to this idea, you are what your circumstances and social forces make you. You don't really have any choice about it. If you want to change it, you probably can't. So why should we tell people just be happy and choose happiness when, after all, they are the victims of things beyond their control? Now, the problem with all of these and the problem with this idea we're talking about is just the fact that it absolves us of personal responsibility. You see, whether it's God who has decided who I am or my genes and environment who have decided who I am or circumstances and social forces, whoever it is, it's not my choice, so it's not my fault. So when I sin, when I make bad choices, when I ruin my life, I don't have to worry about it. I mean, after all, I'm just a victim. Something else has already made that decision for me. I just want to ask the question this morning, is that the way God teaches us to think? And I want to declare, as we examine Scripture, that we have a choice. So first of all, let's talk about this. We have a choice first to obey the gospel. Let's talk about this for a minute from Acts chapter 8, where we began. In Acts chapter 8, you see an example of what we see throughout the New Testament, that there are gospel presentations that then are given to people, and people have to make a choice as to whether they believe in Jesus or not. This happened when Jesus came in the flesh, and people had to decide, who is he? What do I think about him? And now, in Jesus' absence, as he's ascended to heaven, now his preachers go out preaching, and like Philip... They preach the gospel and allow people to make their choices. Look again at verse 12 of Acts chapter 8. Acts 8 and 12, when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So this is a very simple process. He preaches, and they believe him and are baptized. They make a choice to become Christian. Now, the notable thing in this text is that even Simon believes. Simon was a famous magician who had mystified the people of this city. He would have been what we would put on the last, the bottom rung of potential converts. And yet here he is. He believes, and he obeys the gospel. It reminds me of this passage, Acts 2 and verse 40. With many other words, he, that's Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. So here, 
Peter says, you need to choose to save yourselves. The gospel is presented to everyone. Not everyone receives it. Those who received his word were baptized. The people who chose to obey what Peter was teaching. And we could add a number of passages to those two. Passages that show the simple response. You know, we believe, we obey. Or the opposite response. We reject. We say, no, I don't believe it. I don't agree. Or I just won't do it. So how could there be an alternative theory that denies that we have a choice to obey the gospel? Well, there are a few statements that imply there's a little more to the story, and we need to examine those as we think about this topic. So let's go to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13. In Acts 13, Paul is preaching in the synagogue in Antioch. This is Antioch of Pisidia. And he is telling them that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic prophecies, and that they need to believe in Jesus. Acts 13 and verse 38. Acts 13, 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything that, from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So he preaches forgiveness of sins and freedom in Jesus. How will they respond? Look at verse 44. It says, The next Sabbath almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So you see there are two kinds of reactions here. The Jews are jealous because they don't like the fact that the gospel is going to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, meanwhile, they are very excited and they believe the gospel and obey it. So... Verse 48 is the important part of what I want to point out. In verse 48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And, notice the wording, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. See, to some, when they read that, appointed to eternal life, that many believed. It sounds like God had decided beforehand who he would appoint to eternal life. And those were the ones who ended up believing because, after all, they were the ones God had chosen. But it's important to see what's going on here. If you look back in verse 46, when he talks to the Jews, he says, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We turn to the Gentiles. Wow, what a statement. You don't feel that you yourself are worthy of eternal life, and you thrust aside the gospel. Who made the choice there? It's obvious. You thrust it aside. You judge yourselves unworthy. It is not God saying, I won't have you. It is you saying, I won't have God. We have a choice in this text whether to obey the gospel. The question, though, remains. Why would Luke use that wording in verse 48? As many as were appointed to eternal life. I want you to keep that in mind. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But let's add a couple more passages to it. Look at Acts 16 with me. Acts 16. In Acts 16, Paul is preaching in Philippi. There's no synagogue in Philippi, so instead he goes to the next best place, which is a women's prayer meeting down by the river. Acts 16 and verse 13. Acts 16, 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside 
where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat and spoke to the women who had come together. One, of her, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul preaches the gospel, and Lydia responds. But I want you to notice the wording in verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. It looks like God is saying, you don't have a choice about whether you're going to reject this. You are going to listen. I'm opening your heart. Yes, she is baptized. Yes, she is faithful to the Lord. She offers a place to Paul. She's hospitable to Paul. Those things are all pictured as her choices. So it doesn't change the narrative of her response. The question is just, why does he word it that way? So you have that statement in Acts 13. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Here in Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart. And I want to add one more in John chapter 6. Let's go over to John 6. In John 6, Jesus is dealing with some people here who are resistant to his teaching. Particularly, they want him to make more food for them. And he's a little bit reluctant. They're not happy about this. We studied this text Boy, it must have been a couple of months we were in John 6 in our men's study, wasn't it? Uh, John 6 and verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So he says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. That sounds like God does the choosing, right? God has to draw you. But then I want you to notice verse 45. Verse 45 says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So hearing and learning, that puts the choice back on the person, right? God does the drawing, man does the hearing and learning. Both of those working together. Look a little further in verse 64. In verse 64 of John 6 it says, But there are some of you, this is Jesus speaking, There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Some don't believe, he says, that's not granted to you by my Father. But then he also says, many turned back and no longer walked with him. So again, we see people making their decisions about Jesus, but with the hint that God is at work in the process. So you had as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The Lord opened her heart to the things that were spoken by Paul. And here, no one can come unless the Father draws him. So, got all that in mind. What's going on here? Why would he use those phrases? I believe that the reason these phrases are used and this terminology is used is that the scriptures are describing credit, not choice. This is not a description of God taking people's lives over and making them respond properly to the gospel. It is instead about God reminding us over and over again that we do not ever save ourselves. 
that even when we respond in the best way to the gospel, it is always God who deserves the praise and credit, God who is at work in the process, God who has appointed us, God who has opened our hearts, God who has drawn us, God who has saved us. It is always God who gets the credit. So I always have a choice. But when I choose to obey God, God always gets the credit. Now, I know that might be a little bit mind-bending, but it's the way the scriptures portray this so that at the end of our obedience, we don't say, look what I did. I am a great person because I chose to be. Instead, we say, I obeyed God and God has saved me. God appealed to me. God called me. God sanctified me. God is the one who gets the credit. So don't confuse those two. In fact, I think it's important as we read passages that talk about obeying the gospel that we be able to see both God and man doing what God and man need to do in order to make this process work. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you... Through our gospel. In other words, we preached, you obeyed, and God chose. God's at work, and man responds. Ephesians 2 8 and 10 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them. This is a fascinating text. He says, God is the one who gets credit. God did the saving, and it wasn't a result of work so that you can't boast. It's not about what, how great you are and all the great things you did. But God prepared good works that we should walk in them. Isn't that interesting? God did the preparing. We do the working. Who gets the credit? God gets the credit. All of these things working together so that we don't get too big for our britches. And we remember that even when we've done everything God calls on us to do, it is still God who is responsible. This is Romans 6, 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. I don't know if you noticed that. You see, we were obedient from the heart, but who gets the glory? Thanks be to God. We thank God that you obeyed the gospel. God is responsible, even though we do the obedience. So... You see what happens then. We have a choice. We obey the gospel, but God gets the glory. The second thing I want us to see is that we have a choice to follow God's commands. Do you remember Simon? Simon the sorcerer? You probably know Simon the sorcerer, not from his great conversion story, but from his great fall. Because almost immediately after Simon the sorcerer obeys the gospel, what does he do? He tries to buy the ability to give the Holy Spirit to people. And Peter gets in his face. He says, you are poisoned by iniquity and in the gall of bitterness. Repent of this, your wickedness. It is a strong statement from Peter, especially when you consider that Simon is a new convert. If we don't have the ability to choose whether we will do the right thing, what do you think Peter's doing there? If Simon is just a product of his environment and can't help it, why does Peter say, you better help it. If God has chosen Simon to be saved without his doing anything, why does Peter insist you need to do better? Repent of this, your wickedness. 
And doesn't it kind of mean that God messed up? That he picked somebody to be saved who's not really going to be saved because they're not going to really do what God says? See, this idea that we have a choice to follow God's commands gets into a different realm. Calvinism says in the beginning we cannot respond to God at all. Nothing you can do will be obedient to God. You are not good enough on your own. You are incapable of responding to God until you are enlightened by the Holy Spirit. So any effort you make to respond to God on your own is an insult to Him and leads to you glorifying yourself. That's what Calvinism says. But when someone has been saved, see, we've moved from obeying the gospel now to following God as His disciples, as His followers. When someone has been saved, now Calvinism says... You have no choice to not obey God. Now Calvinism says nothing you do can possibly cause you to be lost. You will be saved no matter what. And I just want to stress that we have a choice as to whether we will follow God's commands. Now you can, you can get lost in all that doctrine. I mean, it's wild. To me, it just wildly overcomplicates everything. This is a really simple process to me. Maybe the, I'm oversimplifying, but to me, God speaks and we obey. And it doesn't get any more complicated than that. Anytime something is going to interrupt the process by which God gives us a command and we obey it, it makes me wonder if that's from God. God says it, I do it. Deuteronomy 30, Moses says, This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Or the one probably you came up with first when we uh, announced this topic. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Notice that these texts work under the assumption that we can obey. Because when God gives a command, it implies that we can do what we're commanded to do. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is from Jesus himself, Matthew 7 and verse 21. Jesus says, Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, it is Jesus himself who stresses the need to obey God. He says that in verse 21, the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. So it's not enough to say, I check the Christian box. I believe in Jesus. He says there needs to be obedience. We need to obey the will of the Father. And the reason for that is that every command God gives assumes the will, the ability we have to obey. Now that doesn't mean that we always do obey God. And that does not mean that it's always easy to obey God. It means that we are always able to obey God. And the other thing that I want to say about this is that when God gives a command, disobedience to the command is sin. 
And that matters. Because sin is pictured throughout the Bible as a threat to our fellowship with God. So when we sin and disobey God's commands, it puts the relationship in jeopardy. That is an important idea to say, I have a choice as to whether I'm going to continue in a relationship with God or sacrifice that relationship with God and rebel. I had this discussion with a Calvinist a few years ago, and I asked him, so if, if people can't respond to God's commands, if we can't do anything to be right with God, I asked him, why does God give all these commands? And his answer just floored me. He said, it's to demonstrate how sinful we are. That God gives commands, not expecting anybody to actually do them, but to show just how bad we are. And I said, oh, so it's kind of like he's taunting us. Like, hey, do this, but you can't, but ha ha, but you can't. What a silly picture of God. To say that what God is doing when he gives a command is just sort of sticking it in our eye that we can't do what he's saying. How is God just if he condemns us for what we cannot do? Or if we're going to obey him no matter what, or if commands don't matter as relates to our salvation, what is the point of the Bible? God gives all these commands and expectations for us. What is that about? It's something that a Calvinist really can't answer satisfactorily. Now, before I leave this point, I need to say something about a really important text. And I just want you to follow with me. Just take a moment here. It's in Romans chapter 9. In Romans chapter 9. Because someone is going to come and say, well, what about Romans 9? So let's look in Romans 9 just for a moment. Now, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul's topic is about the nation of Israel. And his point is that in the state that they are in, the nation of Israel is not right with God. Now, he says that in a couple of ways. In the first part of Romans 9, the first part of Romans 10, that they are not saved as they are. Paul even says, I wish that they were saved and I was not, just for their sake. But what has happened is, God has changed the rules on the Jewish nation. See, the, the rules used to be you obey all the commands of God and you'll be right. Now the rules are you believe in God's Son and you can be saved. And by that standard, they fail unless they individually come to believe in Jesus. So the question in Romans 9, 10, and 11, and please, you, you might even sketch this out in your Bible if you write things in your Bible. The question is, is God unjust to change the rules on the Jews? Is that unfair of God? And the answer Paul gives, I think is summarized well in Romans 9, verse 14. Romans 9 and verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul's point here is that God can change the rules and include Gentiles if he wants. If he wants to say, no, the Jews, the rules have changed, and you're out unless you change. 
And if he wants to say, Gentiles, you're in, if you're willing to believe in Jesus. He can do that. After all, he's God. God does what he wants. And in fact, look down in verse 30. Romans 9 and verse 30, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, that is a righteousness by, that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. Do you see the point? The point is Israel is not disqualified because they could not please God. They are not disqualified because God decided you're out. They're disqualified because they weren't willing to follow God's expectations. They wanted to pursue righteousness by works, and God said, works won't work anymore. So is God unjust? Paul says, of course not. But that's not because we don't have the choice. So whatever you say about Romans 9 as you study through it and as you deal with the figures used there, please understand, he is not saying anything about the idea that we don't have a choice as to whether we will obey God and respond to the gospel. Finally, we have a choice to change our lives. The Bible is emphatic about this. It's part of the great appeal of Christianity, that we can become different people, and we don't have to be what we've always been. But I want to show you something. It's in Romans chapter 7. I want to show you something here that I think needs to be said before we just talk about changing our lives as if there's no consideration here except what we want. Because Romans chapter 7 says that it is possible for us to reach points where we are unable to change our lives. It is possible for us to reach points where we cannot change our lives. Romans 7 and verse 15. Romans 7 and verse 15. Paul writes, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So Paul says, I want, in the state he's in, which by the way I believe he is describing his state before he became a Christian. But he says... I find that I want to act a certain way, but I can't. I am unable. And in fact, he uses that term. I cannot do it. I am unable to do it. I do not have the ability to do it. The word we would use to describe this is the word enslaved. He is enslaved, and someone must set him free. He has no choice. Now, this is important. This is what Jesus says about sin. He says in John chapter 8, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Here the image is Paul unable to change his life. It is no longer a matter of his choice. If he had his choice, he would change it, but he can't. He has become enslaved. And I think it is important for us to say that we can become so enslaved to sin we can reach a point in our lives that no amount of choosing does us any different. We have to be set free by Jesus. That's what Paul has happened in verse 24 of Romans 7. In verse 24, it says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He goes on to talk about the new life he has. Romans 8 and verse 1, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free 
in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Drop down to verse 12. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, now things are different for Paul. Now he has been set free. Now he belongs to Christ. Now his decisions matter. He can change his life. He can become a different man. He can put to death the deeds of the body. He can change. I'm sympathetic to the fact that we get into ruts of behavior. And sometimes we want to change and we find ourselves incapable of doing it. I've been there. And sometimes people are addicted and they are desperate and hurt and angry and tired and broke and victimized. And they hate it and they want to change, but any effort they make just seems to backfire. And I want to say, that's not the way Christians live. Christians have been set free so that now our choices matter for whether or not we're going to change our lives. We have been set free. Now, how do we get to a point like Romans 7? We get to that point by pursuing sin, which we have all done. But it is only by Jesus and by the choice we make to be set free that we can become different people. Can I say that again? We choose, see, that's our choice, to be set free. That's God's action. So that now we can change our lives. This is 1 Corinthians 6.11. He says, such were some of you, after having, after having given that long list of, of sinful behaviors, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, things changed because God did something for you. And that led to life change for you. You became a different person. You washed. You were sanctified. And now you've changed your lives. I want you to go with me to one last passage in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Sometimes when the Bible pictures this, it pictures this as growth. Do you remember the the fruits of the Spirit and the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5? For time's sake, we're not going to turn there. But the works of the flesh are actions, choices we make for behaviors we pursue. And the fruit of the Spirit, we're told about those things because those are choices we make to pursue or not pursue. Now, God is at work in us. It's the fruit of the Spirit, after all. But there are choices we make as we follow God's Spirit. So we begin to have a choice to change our lives and become different people. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 blends these things together beautifully. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here's his point. You keep obeying, verse 12, you keep working out your salvation, you keep making choices to do what's right, but then know, verse 13, it is God who is at work in you. Who gets the credit? God is responsible. So it is both my duty to change my life and to make better choices, but it is also God's work. He works in me. We change our lives bit by bit as God's Spirit works within us. Now, I want to remind you about credit. 
because this is important. I've said it over and over again. Sometimes when we talk about we have a choice, we begin to think, oh, well, it's all about us. And I don't want you to get that impression at all. It is important because when we come to Christ and we begin to take the things of Christ seriously, we begin to change. We become more peaceful and more loving and more patient. We grow in discipline, personal discipline. We gain some wisdom. We begin to treat other people better. We become better husbands and wives. We become better parents. We take better care of our money. My story as a Christian is growing bit by bit, day by day, in all of those areas. And sometimes I do really well, and then sometimes I fall on my face. But I see the upward trajectory of growth. I want to remind you that as we live for Christ, our lives will be blessed. Other people are going to see the way we live, and they will notice it. And we will notice it. And the question of vital importance will be, who did it? As my life changes, as I become more and more like Jesus, who's responsible? I have a choice, but as I choose the path of the Father, it is God who gets the glory. Now, this whole teaching that we've been talking about, this idea of determinism, I believe that the the teaching that we have no choice is a dangerous teaching. I believe it's dangerous for a number of reasons. I believe it's dangerous because it makes God responsible for evil. We don't have time to go into that, but who else would be? It makes God's commands taunts, like I talked about. It makes God unjust to condemn sin because, after all, if God decided I'm going to sin, how can God be fair in condemning me for my sin when I didn't have a choice about it? But I am particularly concerned about this teaching because it makes sin not my fault. My life is not my fault. My choices don't really matter. When I hurt other people, I'm not really responsible. And please hear me. Whether we blame it on God, or we blame it on our genes and environment, or we blame it on social pressures, any teaching that would say my choices don't matter is wrong wherever it comes from. We do have a choice. The question is, what are we going to do with it? You know, we're going to have choices this week. We have choices today. Choices to prioritize God. Choices to treat other people with love and care. Choices about what we're going to spend our time doing, thinking about. Choices about our own personal discipline. Choices about our families. And you know what? We're going to have those choices over the coming days, coming weeks, And as time goes by, we're going to stack those choices on top of each other. And they're going to lead in the direction. They're going to lead in the direction of making me more like what God wants me to be or further away into what I want. We have a choice. What direction are we going to choose? How are those choices going to stack up? What kind of person am I going to be? But I want to focus particularly at this moment and the choice we have as to whether or not we're going to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've sung about, we've taken the Lord's Supper, we've thought a lot this morning about how much God loves us and how that love has been demonstrated by one particularly seminal event in history where God sent His Son to live as a man and ultimately to sacrifice His own life 
for the sins of the world. And the question is, are you willing to change your life, to choose to become a follower of Jesus? You have that choice. Jesus teaches us a new way of living, a new way of loving, a new hope. What will you choose? Will you choose to be a follower of Jesus? If you're ready to do that this morning, this time is for you. We're going to sing a song to encourage you. And if there is any need you have, or if you're ready at this moment to be baptized into Christ and have your sins washed away, please come as we stand and sing to encourage you.